Hey, podcast listeners, the Orthodox Center for the Advancement of Biblical Studies is sponsoring its annual biblical symposium at St. Elizabeth Orthodox Church in St. Paul, Minnesota, March 8 to 9, 2019. This year's keynote speaker is Dr. Robert Miller from the Catholic University of America. Meet Father Paul Tarazi and other scholars who will present and discuss papers on biblical exegesis and language. Join Father Mark Bulos and Dr. Richard Benton for a live recording of the Bible's Literature Podcast. Engage with others like you who are committed to biblical studies for all who have ears to hear. Register online at ephesusschool.org. Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Too often, students of Scripture dismiss difficult texts by separating the culture of the biblical era from what they consider the real message of the biblical story. But this is a fallacy. Empirically, the text, the letters and words inscribed on the page are the message. The rule of Matthew precludes the addition or subtraction of anything from this inscription. If the message in your head does not recount every letter of Hebrew and Greek in the entire Bible, it's not the biblical message. So when scripture deals with Roman culture, like it or not, Roman culture is part of the package. When we attempt to sift it out, the gospel becomes unintelligible. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 266 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, we spoke at length about the will of God the Father and the submission of Jesus to that will, so that when Jesus gives a command, he's exercising his Father's will. And the example we gave flows right into today's episode of the centurion in Matthew, who has a mandate and therefore speaks with authority, but it's not personal authority he is exercising. Right. It's the authority that's given to him. I mean, he is just a vessel for this authority. Someone speaks from on high, it goes through him, and it's passed on to the person who is supposed to fulfill the order. This is how the centurion functions. The leper asked Jesus to be healed, and Jesus said, yes, I want you to be healed, but Jesus removes himself from the equation. He says, don't talk about me, don't mention me, just do what Moses said. Jesus is this channel for the word of Moses to come to this unclean person. This falls along with the message that we kept hearing again and again in 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, that it's not about you, it's not about your ego, it's about setting aside the ego. So now we have a centurion that is not about himself, he's not about giving orders alone, 
he takes the order from the one who's above him and he gives it to the one who's below him and he has no problem with being part of this pecking order. Any soldier knows that when it gets right down to the wire, it can't be about you. It can't be about your ego or your feelings or what you want. It has to be about the mission with this added critical point. If you make it about yourself, other people will die. The beautiful parallel between the military metaphor and the metaphor of the New Testament is that in both cases, life is on the line. If a soldier acts unwisely, he jeopardizes life. And if you don't act on the wisdom of the New Testament, you jeopardize life. That's the powerful connection. And this is exactly how Jesus secures life or sustains life for his flock. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Capernaum is the village of grace, which is always a reminder in Matthew that Jesus is going to exercise his mandate by offering grace to those who otherwise would not have had a chance. And in no function is this more beautifully expressed than the centurion who represents the enemy of the Jewish people in late antiquity. He is the oppressor. He is the occupier. And Jesus is coming to the village of grace, the town of God's grace, to show grace on this unrighteous, unclean, outsider. It's significant that you would have one representing the earthly authority coming to this guy, Jesus, who's all about eliminating the ego. I mean, he's the anti-authority, meaning he's got no respect for the earthly authority. And here comes the local representative of the earthly authority with his armor and with his sword. The only way to really understand what's happening in verse 5 is to put your mind in the mind of an occupied people who are under the boot of an oppressor. Because if a centurion comes to a Jew in late antiquity, talking about someone being fearfully tormented, logically, a Jew is going to roll their eyes and say, really, a Roman centurion is coming to me for help with someone who's tormented fearfully? Are you kidding me? Take a look around at Palestine. What are you talking about when you say fearful torment? Again, if we put ourselves in the historical context of the addressees, this is scandalous. It's scandalous that Jesus would help a centurion, especially when the centurion is asking for help to alleviate the kind of suffering that Romans cause. It's a powerful scene. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. So without hesitation, Without hesitation, Jesus is going to offer grace to his enemy in the village of grace. It's significant that Jesus reacted with a leper exactly the same as he reacts with the centurion. Jesus does not make this distinction, which we would expect him to make. That's something that we should be paying attention to, that we have someone who is at the lowest of society and someone who's got all the power in society, and Jesus does not distinguish between the two persons' ranks. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority 
with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. This section, verses 8 and 9, demonstrates the connection with the previous pericope about the leper. Because now we see that this unrighteous man who represents the powers of this world, this unrighteous man, understands the will of Jesus and how it relates to his father because he understands his place in the pecking order of the Roman army. And this is exactly how Paul in his letters deals with the Roman household. I can't stress this enough. People hear the New Testament and say, well, we're not Romans, so we can dismiss Roman culture from the content of the New Testament and just deal with the message. This is fanciful thinking. It's magical thinking. How can you dismiss the content of a text and then say you still accept its message? Clearly, in the Gospel of Matthew, the evangelist is preaching the hierarchical structure of the Roman Empire as the mechanism by which the hierarchical order of the household of Abraham can be extended to the Gentiles. It's the same function. It has nothing to do with Romans or Jews. It's a recognition by the authors of the New Testament that we need to eliminate the ego of the individual, but we still need to have a command structure. But the power that animates that command structure has to come from the wisdom of God, from his scripture, not from the ego of the prophet or the priest, let alone the king and the prince. The fact that he is centered under this authority is the point of this pericope here, because not only does he recognize Jesus's authority when he says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, which, based on what we were saying a moment ago, is especially surprising because here's Jesus, who's a nothing Jew, and we have the Roman authority with all the trappings of authority along with him. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. So that's the first thing, is that he sets aside his own ego by saying, I'm not worthy. The leper just says, heal me. The centurion says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But then the second point is, says, speak the word and my slave will be healed. Not only does the centurion understand himself in the pecking order, he is the first one to recognize the power of Jesus's word and not Jesus's word as the word that belongs to him, but as the word that he delivers. He recognizes that it's not about the person of Jesus. It's the word that Jesus preaches that's going to heal his slave. It's the word that heals. When Jesus before to the leper says, don't talk about me, go do what Moses says. This is saying, follow the word of Moses because I'm here just to deliver this word. And that's all that is needed for the slave to be healed. One thing I want to point out, Richard, is that the link to the Roman household is technical. It's not just that the structure of the Roman army is analogous to the structure of a Roman household, because the word pace in verse six, which is translated servant here in English, actually means child. The centurion is talking about the well-being of a child in his household. And Paul talks about the child being on the same level as the slave in the Roman household. And then later, at the end of the section in 
verse 9, he uses the word thulos and explicitly refers to a slave. So he's saying child and slave in the same passage. So it may be in this example that the centurion understands from his station as a commander of the legion how the command chain works, but it's also linked to his household. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew about the will of his father and the household of Abraham. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now, this passage makes no sense if for you the word faith means what you formulate in your mind and submit to what you believe. If it's about what you think or what you believe, this passage in Matthew doesn't work. But if you understand it in the way that Richard and I have been emphasizing the past several years on this podcast, that it means trust, then suddenly you realize that faith in the Gospel of Matthew is about your trust in the command chain. And this fits so well with the themes that we've been seeing so far. Remember, it's about the kingdom. It's about the king. And what does this mean, kingship and king and kingdom? It's very concrete. When the representative of the king speaks, the word is the word. He's only a representative. But the item that comes from the king is the word, is the command. And the fact, like you said, Father, that the centurion implicitly trusts in what Jesus says, if he says he's healed, he's healed. That's it. For the centurion, that's all that matters is the word, the command, just like in the Roman army, in any army, the command of the commander. I mean, look, we even say in English, who is the leader? The commander the one who commands, the one who speaks the word. Jesus is the commander, but he's not the king. The word of the king comes to him and he commands it. And the centurion understands this precisely because he trusts in the system. And that's why the centurion is unique among those that Jesus emphasizes here among Israel, because the centurion simply hears the word and trusts that it's going to happen. And the fact that those who are inside the religious community do not place that same level of trust in the content of God's will, his instruction, is the great scandal of the Gospel of Matthew. And remember that this scandal is applied to the church to which this gospel is addressed. So don't anthropomorphize the word Israel. Don't do it. Because if you're baptized, you are claiming to be a son of the kingdom. And if you claim to be a son of the kingdom and don't trust this instruction and act according to its will, then this passage applies to you. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So you can see here, Richard, how Jesus is consolidating the discussion of the Roman household and the household of Abraham. He is joining the Roman household to this biblical household. He is, in effect, scripturalizing the Roman household 
and linking it to the household of faith. And then he adds this ominous warning that those who claim to have placed their trust in the head of this household, but don't act accordingly, will lose their place. And there will be plenty of people like the centurion who keep their trust and therefore maintain their station at Abraham's table. Twice we have the kingdom of heaven in verse 11 and the kingdom in verse 12. It's about the kingdom. Who is a citizen of this kingdom? It's the one who trusts in the word that is spoken. If you are one who puts your trust in this word, then you have a seat at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're communing with them in this kind of direct way, not some mystical way, but where you are there with those who have demonstrated faith like Abraham. And by faith, I mean trust. Just as Abraham trusted, those who trust are citizens of the same kingdom as Abraham and sit at the table with him and his offspring, Isaac and Jacob. So interestingly here, he says Jacob. He doesn't say Israel, which of course he could say, but he says Jacob. Then the ones who assume themselves to be children of the kingdom, once you assume yourself, it has nothing to do with the word anymore. It has nothing to do with trust anymore. And those are the ones who are cast out into the outer darkness, meaning they are cut off. You know, if we think of the image of the sheep and the shepherd, the one who eats with the shepherd, those are the sheep. Those who are cut off are going to die because they need the flock and they need the shepherd in order to survive. So the one who trusts in the word of the commander, in the word of Jesus, has the opportunity to be a citizen of this kingdom and to sit at the table with the other children of this kingdom. And those who do not trust in this word have no place in this kingdom. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Of course, with our translation, Richard, Go, it shall be done for you as you have trusted. And the child was healed that very moment. So if you trust, God will provide life for your children. He will sustain your community. He will ensure the continuation of life, not just for those under the boot of the tyrant, but also for those who manifest the will of the tyrant. The door is open to them as well. This is the evangelization of the Roman Empire. The evangelization of the Roman Empire will be affected once people trust in the authority and the word of authority as they did before, but now placing that trust in the word that comes from God, not the word that comes from the earthly authority. Now, later on, of course, this is going to be a challenge that Jesus's power looks less and less like earthly power. They must trust in the word of the Father, just as they trusted in the word of their own earthly father, their own earthly commander. The servant never asked to be healed. Only the servant's master asked for the servant to be healed. And the master's trust was enough to heal the servant. Understanding that mechanism is just as significant. So far, we've shown how the centurion got what he wanted because he trusted implicitly in the power of the one who bore the word. But imagine also that even his household benefits, just as by believing Jesus that his word is true, one receives the word of his father, the servant of the centurion who trusts in his 
Master, the centurion, receives the word of Jesus. The servant, who does nothing except simply serve his master, receives the blessing of the trust and the faith of his master. I want to encourage our listeners to take seriously the importance of studying Roman history and Roman culture. It's as important for the study of the New Testament as the study of languages. Father Paul has repeatedly emphasized the importance of Hebrew and, by extension, Arabic as a living Semitic language that provides insight into biblical Hebrew. At the same time, it's important to study Greek and Latin and Roman history, because when you do, you will come closer to understanding the mind of the addressee of the Gospel of Matthew. And you cannot hear the Gospel of Matthew as a modern person. You have to transport yourself into the context of the original addressees of the story, and then suddenly you can begin to understand what's happening. That's why I am personally scornful of anyone who tries to dismiss Roman culture from the content of the New Testament. You should instead be understanding and learning Roman culture so that you can hear what Matthew is saying to the Romans. If we are supposed to ignore Roman history, then why is Jesus pointing out to his Jewish friends how they're going to be cast out, whereas these Gentile Roman centurions who trust in his word will sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This problem, Father, is one that's been going on throughout all history, that no one wants to pay attention to the Romans and the way that the Romans do things and the way that the Romans follow orders, even though Jesus himself holds up the centurion as one who has trust like no one else in Israel. Unfortunately, people impose their historical context on the text. So if you are a feminist, instead of hearing what's happening in the book of Ruth, you project contemporary discussions of the role of women into the story, and you don't hear what the story is saying. If you're an egalitarian, you, by default, are going to have an allergic reaction to authority in the gospel. I'm not disputing the ideology of modern society. I'm saying that if you are serious about wanting to understand Matthew, you need to set your views aside and just understand what's happening in Matthew. You can decide then whether or not you agree or disagree with what Matthew is saying, but you're never going to hear what Matthew is saying if you begin the discussion of the centurion and the Roman household by imposing your view that everybody is equal and authority is a problem. That's fine, but you're never going to understand Matthew. Thanks very much, Dr. Milton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.